Well, good morning, family. So I invite you this morning, if you would, to take your Bibles and open to the book of John. We're beginning a new series today. I hope you've got John 4 open this morning. I'd like you to either follow along or just listen as our passage is read for us this morning. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Go call your husband and come here. I have no husband. You're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is a place where people ought to worship. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in the Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. Just then His disciples came back. They marveled that He was talking with a woman. But no one said, What do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. 
Do you not say, there are not yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already, the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have not, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there for two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Thank you. That was a lot more meaningful than me just sitting here reading it. And most of us know that we, we talked about it a few months ago as we were going through the book of Acts, that most Jews, most good Jews, going from Judea to Galilee, they would go around Samaria, all the way across the Jordan and around, instead of going up a straight line through the middle of Samaria in order to avoid bumping into Samaritans. And yet John writes here, he says, Jesus had to pass through Samaria. You can almost hear in his voice this, what were probably with the disciples, this little dripping disappointment of, oh no, here he goes. He has to go through Samaria. Just like Jesus, always doing the unexpected and the weird. He's dragging them through Samaria. But Jesus has a divinely ordained appointment with this woman at the well. An appointment that for a first century rabbi was shocking on every level. Shocking because she was a Samaritan. Shocking because she is a woman. Shocking because she is a broken person. Whether through misfortune or whether through a lot of bad choices, we don't, we don't know why, but five marriages have come and gone with this woman. And now she's in an immoral relationship. This would make her a social pariah. And it's evidenced by the fact that she's going to the well to draw water at the sixth hour, that is noon, the middle of the day and the heat of the day. It's a half mile trip from Sikar to this well. And you wouldn't make that trip in the heat of the desert sun if you could avoid it. You would do that early in the morning. That's when most of the women would have been out. She's going when hopefully no one's there. Jesus sits at the well. He's tired. And the disciples head into town to get some food to eat. Almost certainly as they go in the path to town, they pass this woman coming by them, oblivious to just how central this woman will figure into their lives in the next couple of days. And how she will figure centrally in spiritual conversations for the next two millennia to come. Jesus begins a conversation with her as she comes up and he asks her for a drink. Then he shifts the conversation to spiritual matters and he offers to her the living waters of eternal life. She's 
intrigued, asks for this water, and then because he reveals to her her life story, she concludes he's a prophet and she brings up a, a spiritual debate, a theological question that goes between the Jews and the Samaritans and wants him to settle the matter. And after Jesus gives an answer and she's probably scratching her head, she says, I know when Messiah comes, He will explain everything. He'll sort it all out. And that brings us to our the verse that's our key focus this morning. And over these next 14 weeks, each week we're going to be looking in the Gospel of John at a statement of Jesus, different statements of Jesus, each one in Greek using two words, ego emi, and in English the words are I am. And here in John chapter 4 and verse 26, Jesus in this remarkable encounter with this, that, that culturally sh- this encounter shouldn't be happening, but it's a divine encounter, Jesus makes an astounding statement. He says, as she says, I know when Messiah comes, He'll explain all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. Literally in the Greek, Jesus says, standing here, I am. See, Jesus makes this astounding statement and to us, you and me, looking on this side of everything, looking back, we know Jesus is the Messiah. No big whoop here. But for these folks who have been looking for the Messiah for thousands of years, both Jews and Samaritans, this is a big deal. And it's also a big deal because if you look through the Gospels, read through the Gospels carefully, you will notice something. You'll notice that Jesus avoids very carefully ever making any public statements that He's the Messiah. You may remember that big confession by Peter in in several of the Gospels where he makes that great confession. He says, you are the Christ. In answer to the question, Jesus says, who do people say I am? They give all these answers. Well, who do you say I am? And Peter speaks up. Man, he nails this one all the times he sticks his foot in his mouth. This time, he gets it right. You are the Christ! The Son of the living God! And Jesus says, you're right. God has shown that to you, not men. And then if you follow in every one of the accounts, the Gospel accounts, right after that, Jesus gives them a warning. He says, don't tell anybody. That astounds us. Jesus came as Messiah. Why doesn't He make it known? That's what His brothers say later. They say, look, if you're trying to be a public figure, you ought to get down there in Jerusalem and, and where you can be seen and heard. And, and uh, Jesus says, no, I, I don't think so. It frustrated his enemies. John chapter 10, just a few chapters over, and it's actually by that time, it's late in Jesus' ministry. It's Jesus goes to Jerusalem with the disciples to celebrate, it says, the Feast of Dedication. That's 
in our terminology, it's Hanukkah. It's December, and it's the December right before Jesus is crucified in the spring. It's right there. And Jesus is, is surrounded in the temple that day. His enemies gather around Him, and they said to Him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. We're tired of you using all of these figures of speech and speaking around the bush. Tell us, are you the Christ? Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. In other words, what Jesus says is, I've told you. I've told you through my works. I've told you through my what all the things I say. All of that is enough. He's saying the problem isn't clarity. The problem is, it's not a lack of clarity. It's a lack of faith. You don't want to believe. But again, Jesus doesn't say, I am the Christ. He just says, I've already told you. But here, John chapter 4, if you go through the Gospels, this is the clearest statement where Jesus simply says, I'm Him. I'm Him. Here with this Samaritan woman, sitting by a well, a broken lady. That's what makes this so remarkable. Jesus says, I'm Him. And then just as He's saying that, here come the disciples. <laughs> I think, it doesn't say, I think the disciples hear Jesus last, the tail end of Jesus' words. I think they hear Him say, I'm Him. And But they come up and, and here he is with this woman. And a rabbi doesn't talk to a woman. And a Jew doesn't talk with a Samaritan. And this is just all wrong. And yet I love it. These guys come up and nobody says anything. So many times the disciples say the wrong thing. This time they just all sit there. And there is this awkward They don't say anything and she just runs off. Maybe she's intimidated by these guys, but it says, I know she runs off, she hurries off, because it says here, she left her water pot. She came to the well, why? To get water. She comes a half mile down here to get water, meets Jesus, and then she runs off, leaving the water pot. <laughs> the whole reason she came. And maybe she's intimidated by this, this whole band of Jews who just shows up and Jewish men. But I think it's more that she is just blown away by what she just heard. Because the last word she heard is, I am He. And what's the next thing she does? She goes right back to town and it says, she tells the people. Some of your translations say the men, but it's it really the word there is just for the it's the populace. It's everybody. She tells the folks in town, well, you won't believe who I just met. He told me everything I've ever done. And she asks a most important question. She says, verse 29, can this be the Christ? Can He really be the Messiah? Is Jesus who He claims to be? 
That's a great question that every person on this planet ought to ask. They ought to hear who Jesus is. Shame on us if they don't. And they ought to then ask the question, is Jesus who He claimed to be? Which raises a very important question to each of us. Is Jesus who He claimed to be? Let me give us quickly this morning three reasons why we know Jesus is. Because maybe you wonder, how do I really know Jesus is the Messiah? First thing I would say is we know because of prophecy. There are hundreds of prophecies about Jesus that He fulfilled. But let me give you one that I think is significant. Going back to the book of Daniel chapter 9, you may know this prophecy. It's about the 77s. Daniel is there praying. He is in captivity. He and all of the Jews in captivity in Babylon. And he's praying for his people, remembering that God has made a promise that He will send the people back to Israel. And as he's praying, God sends an answer through Gabriel, the angel. And God says this through Gabriel, know and understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, because Jerusalem and all of Israel is in ruins back there in Israel. He says, from the time to rebuild and restore Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler comes, there will be 77s and 62 sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and trench, but in times of trouble. After the sixty-two sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. And the people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. There's an awful lot of stuff there, but let me just say a couple things. Daniel is told that when a decree is issued to rebuild and restore Jerusalem, there's going to be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. That's a total, if you do the math, sixty-nine sevens. 69 times 7 is 483. I'm a math whiz. (laughs) Interestingly enough, that decree was issued by a guy named King Artaxerxes. 483 years later, guess who shows up on the scene? Jesus. I believe if you do the chronology, and there's been a lot of them done, I believe that God works things to the day so that it's from the very day the decree is issued 483 years later that Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey on what we call Palm Sunday. I think God is that precise and He sweats the details, but that's another story. Daniel also predicts here that after Messiah comes, what's going to happen to Him? He's going to be cut off and have nothing. What happened to Jesus? He's crucified. Then he says that the city, Jerusalem, and the temple, which are going to be rebuilt, are going to be destroyed again. And a couple decades after Jesus is crucified and resurrected and leaves earth, the Romans destroy Jerusalem and the temple. Coincidence? No, it's Verification. Jesus is exactly who He said He was. Prophecy confirms Jesus' identity. Secondly, we know Jesus is who He said He is because of miracles. The miracles of Jesus. A little while before this 
incident here in John chapter 4, go back to John chapter 1, you'll recall that this that God sent a man on the scene named John. John the Baptist. John the Baptizer. And John the Baptizer in John chapter 1 identifies Jesus as the promised One. He says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. As He's baptizing Jesus, He's there. He sees the Holy Spirit come upon Jesus. He is there as the voice of God thunders His approval. This is My beloved Son. John says, this is Him, the one of whose whose sandals I am not worthy to tie. John identifies Him as the Messiah. And yet, a while after this, John is sitting in prison. And he begins to have the same question. Is Jesus really the Messiah? Or did I get it wrong? And when John is in prison, Matthew writes in Matthew 11, When John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent words by his disciples and said to him, to Jesus, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk and lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised and the poor have good news preached to them. Again, Jesus doesn't just send word back. Hey, John. Got it. I'm the Messiah. What does he do? He says, John, listen to these guys. What's happening here? Well, there's this miracle and this miracle and this miracle. John, go back and read the prophets. What do the prophets say the Messiah is going to do? Well, this miracle and this miracle and this miracle. You see? The miracles that Jesus did were evidence that he is indeed the Messiah. Third thing that evidences that Jesus is who He said He is, is the resurrection of Jesus. Acts chapter 2, Peter is addressing the crowds there and he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through Him in your midst, as you yourselves know, because you all saw Him, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised Him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for Him to be held by it. And so he goes on just a few verses later and he says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ. Christ, by the way, and Messiah are the same word. Messiah is Hebrew. Christ is Greek. And they stand for the Anointed One, the Promised One. Jesus is Lord in Christ. What He is saying is the absolute proof and verification is that He rose from the dead. Three big reasons how we know that Jesus is the Messiah. The question is, if Jesus really is the Messiah, what difference does it make? The answer is, it should make all the difference in the world. If Jesus really is the Messiah, it should change everything. In our passage before us this morning, I want us to just end by looking at two vital responses to the reality that Jesus is the Messiah. If Jesus is really the Messiah, what difference should it make? 
In verses 39 to 42, we saw the, the response among the Samaritans. It says that all the people of the town came out to see Jesus. And they asked Him to stick around for a couple of days. It seems that by the end of these couple of days, the majority of these Samaritans have become believers in Jesus. And they say, indeed, He is the Savior of the world. First response that should happen if Jesus really is the Messiah is that you need to receive Him as your Savior. Jesus is indeed, as they said, the Savior of the world, but that's an absolutely useless fact. It's a valueless reality. It's, it's true, but you never really apply it to you. Yeah, Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is God. But unless you trust Him as your Savior, to you it's a useless fact. Jesus had to go through Samaria because, as Luke writes, Jesus had a mission. In Luke chapter 19, Jesus says, I have come to seek and to save that which is lost. And this woman and these Samaritans were ready to hear and ready to believe in Jesus to meet the Savior from sin. And I think part of the reason this story is recorded here for you and for me is to remind us or perhaps inform us that the message of salvation in Jesus is for anyone and for everyone who will believe. It's for outcasts. It's for sinners. For broken people. And there's nobody who has sinned too much. Nobody who is too far outside. Nobody who is too far gone but that God's grace will not reach them through Jesus Christ if they will turn to Him. If you've never received Jesus as your Savior, that's the message to you today. But most of us here today, especially coming out on a day when the weather's kind of questionable, most of us who come here today come as believers in Jesus Christ. There's a message for us here today that is Incredibly important. See, Jesus, I don't think, just went through Samaria to bring this woman and this village to faith in Him. That was a big reason why He came. But He also came here for the benefit of His disciples. And in between His visit with the woman and His visit with the Samaritans, Jesus has a chat with the disciples. They come up. Upon this Jesus talking to this lady, and they, they have lunch with them, and they don't say anything. There's this awkward silence. She runs off, and Peter is standing there with his bag from Subway. He's got a toasted steak and cheese sandwich, and it's getting cold. And the guys are like, hey, Jesus, eat. The disciples have a priority here, and it's lunch. And they have a second priority, and that is get lunch done so we can get some strength, so we can get moving again, so we can get out of this place. Get back to Galilee, which is home, and Jewish territory. I think that's what's on their minds. And Jesus brought them here for an education. You see, if Jesus is Messiah, 
Not only do we need to receive Him as our Savior, these disciples had already done that, but we need to embrace His mission. They still don't understand what His mission is. I wonder this morning, what's your food? They come up to Jesus, eat! And He goes, guys, not hungry. I've got food you don't know about. And they look at each other and go, did you give him food? I didn't give him food. Maybe that lady gave him food. I don't know. Where did he get food? With the woman, he talks about living water and she's confused. With the disciples, he talks about food and they're confused. He says, i got food you guys don't know about. He goes, guys, my food is to do the will of Him who sent me. To do His work. So I ask the question, what is your food? What is it that moves you? What is it that fills you? What is it that satisfies you? Jesus says, what moves me and fills me and satisfies me is doing God's will. Everything else pales in comparison. See, we, we often say that we love Jesus. And we call ourselves Christians, Christ followers. But do we live it? I know so much of the time I really don't. So much of the time I'm like these disciples. And I have a feeling you are too. I'm focused on lunch. I'm focused on going through life, chasing my own agenda, chasing my own desires, chasing my own comforts, chasing... You know, me. <laughs> just going through the routines of life sometimes, not even thinking, just doing stuff. And rarely ever do you or I ask God, hey God, what is it you want me to do today? The ice is coming down. Everything is closed. God, what do you want me to do today? No, we're usually thinking... I've got a whole list of things I need to do today. (laughs) Or a whole list of things I want to do today. And we never stop to ask God, what's your agenda? And Jesus is constantly saying, Father, what is it you would have me do? My food is to do His will. And then we wonder why we live life so frustrated. We wonder why we live life so empty. We wonder why... You know, we're just dissatisfied with life. When Jesus said it kind of plainly, He said, just thinking of Luke chapter 9, verse 24, it actually shows up, I think, a half dozen different times, at least five times in the Gospel. Jesus says something like this, For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it or keep it. The whole point and the wording changes slightly every time it's said, but the point is the same all the way through. If you and I want to stick to our agenda and stick to our desires and stick to our view of what we want our life to do and our list, we're always going to end up at the end losing life. Wasting time. And end up empty and frustrated. 
But when we give up our life for Him and say, okay, God, what is it you want me to do? Guess what happens? We find it. We keep it. And that's why Jesus says, when I do that, I'm full, guys. Jesus is trying to teach them a very important lesson, and it's not just a lesson they need, it's a lesson we need. When your agenda is your agenda, you will always end up empty. When we make our agenda His agenda, we will always end up full. That's what He's saying. Secondly, as we embrace His mission, it's going to mean that we're going to have a harvest mentality. We're going to have a whole different way of looking at life. Because Jesus' mission, what I've already said, is to seek and save the lost. We saw that in our study in Acts last fall, where Jesus took His mission and He passed it on to us. Where He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be My witnesses. You're going to carry on My mission. He wants us to have, as He does, a harvest agenda. Four things, and I close with these. Four things that will characterize a harvest agenda, a harvest mentality in our life. First, we will recognize that there is a harvest around us and it's often where we least expect to find it. Believe me, the last thing these guys expected to find in Samaria was a harvest. They thought this is the shortcut from Jerusalem to Galilee and it's not a pleasant shortcut and we just want to get through here as fast as we can. And that's how most of us live life where God wants us to realize that the harvest is all around us if we'll open our eyes. And He says to these guys, Hey, lift up your eyes and look. The fields are white and the harvest. And as He says that, I think He's directing these guys literally to look up and to see coming down the hill from Sychar, here come these Samaritans with their white robes or light-colored robes kind of flopping in the breeze. And as they come down, they look like grain that's ripe flowing in the breeze. He says, look guys, there's the harvest. Who would have expected that? Spiritual harvest field in Samaria. See, that obnoxious kid who ran his bike through your garden... Or that difficult coworker that gives you grief at work. Or your grouchy old neighbor next door. Or that incompetent waiter. See, they actually just might be someone that God places in your path as a spiritual harvest field if we'll change our mentality. There's somebody that needs Jesus. Instead of getting aggravated or just ignoring them, we think, I wonder if they know Jesus. Judging by the way they're acting, they probably don't. (laughs) We have to look past ourselves to see the harvest field. Secondly, what Jesus says here, He says that this... Harvest has rewards that are eternal. He says, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. The rewards of harvest are eternal both for us 
who are involved in the sowing and reaping and for the folks who are saved by the grace of God. And, you know, you and I get so wrapped up in stuff that doesn't matter at all. Stuff that, you know, like paychecks and houses and cars and movies and computers and phones and music and all the stuff that's here today and of less value tomorrow and of very little value in 30 years and of no value in eternity. And that's the stuff that grabs our attention most of the time. There's great joy and there is eternal reward when we engage in God's harvest mission. Thirdly, I notice that Jesus says here about this harvest as He's teaching them. He says that the sowers and the reapers rejoice together. The disciples are about to participate. He says, I've sent you to harvest that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you've entered into their labors. He says, guys, you are about to, to, to experience and to enjoy the blessing of a spiritual harvest. They're going to see dozens, if not hundreds, of Samaritans come to faith in Jesus Christ. And they're going to be a part of it. And they did absolutely nothing for it. Seeds were planted by the prophets long ago. Seeds were planted by who knows what things God brought into their lives. And seeds were planted by Jesus who planted the seed in this woman who goes back and tells everybody in the village, you will not believe it. I think I've met the Christ. Could it be Him? Come see. And the whole town comes out. And so it is, by the way, is that we need to understand that when we harvest when we bring people to Jesus Christ, it's usually because other folks have planted seeds. Sometimes we're going to be those who plant the seeds and we're not going to see a harvest. But in the end, the sower and the reaper share in the joy and the rewards of the harvest. So don't get discouraged when you sow seeds and nobody becomes a believer. And don't get, so, don't get puffed up when you lead somebody to Christ and say, oh, I just brought somebody to Jesus. No, God planted a lot of seeds and you just got the joy of being the harvester. All that, just one last big point for us. And that is, we need to be seed sowers. We need to tell people about Jesus. You know, if your neighbor, if you, you went next door, were talking to your neighbor, chatting about whatever, and he started talking to you and said, you know, last year, I went and I prepared a vegetable garden and I went out every single day, watered my vegetable garden, looked at my vegetable garden, Every single day, all through the growing season, all through the harvest season. At the end of it, it was a total bust. I never harvested a thing. I said, wow. What kind of seeds did you plant? He goes, seeds? <laughs> never planted any seeds. They'd look at him like he's a total idiot. <laughs> and I wonder... If we're not seeing people come to faith in Jesus Christ, we better ask the question, are we planting seeds? Because there is no harvest if there is no planting of seeds. We need to be seed sowers. So be seed sowers. Who Ask the question... Later this afternoon, who do you know or who do you come in contact with who's not a believer in Jesus Christ? Then jot down 
two or three or four or six of their names. And then start today. And let's start praying. God, give me an opportunity to share Jesus with this person. And when he does, start planting seeds. Start looking for those opportunities. See, I have a feeling if we start planting seeds, we'll start seeing a harvest. And we need to be doing it because it's the mission Jesus left us. Because He really is the Messiah. Father, this morning we recognize that our Lord Jesus has left us with a marvelous responsibility and a marvelous opportunity to be those who continue His mission. To, those who, to be those folks who are engaged in His harvest. Father, we also recognize that most of us so often are not engaged at all because we have been focused on the wrong things. We've been intent on our agendas. We've been intent on, on uh, our desires. And we've given little thought to the mission. Probably because we don't even give enough real thought to our Messiah. Sink and impress upon us this morning the reality that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised One of God. And may He be not to us then not just our Savior, but our Lord. May we engage on His mission and make it our food to do His will. This we ask in His name. Amen.